Welcome back on this evening of Father's Day. Appreciate those of you taking time from your away from your families and maybe with your families to be back again tonight for Sunday evening service. If you haven't been with us before, if you're a guest, we are on Sunday nights in a series called Unswerving, which is basically looking at the stories of bold faith in the New Testament, in the Old Testament. And our key verse for that uh, series has been uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. The writer there says, and as he's making the case to Christians who've converted from Judaism to Christianity uh, and how much better of a covenant they now live under, he says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Last week, we looked at God's covenant with Abraham, and we looked at how Abraham trusted God and believed the promise even long before he would receive it. Tonight, I want to look specifically at the promise of God within Abraham's seed of Isaac, and not just the seed that would become Isaac, but the actual seed that would become Christ. And and what this whole covenant would mean with Abraham. Hopefully tonight we'll understand a little better about why Abraham is called father of the faithful. If you're studying the, the text, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 11 through 25. Uh, we'll start in Genesis chapter 12. Before we, I mean, as you turn over to Genesis 12, <clears throat> hear, hear from God's word in Hebrews chapter 11, the chapter of faith. Here's what it says. Start in verses 11 and 12. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past age. And she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and he as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Abraham's promise was going to be fulfilled, and this promise that God had made to him was first going to be made in the promise of a little baby boy. A baby boy is not so unusual. This morning, got to see Juniper Greenwood and how adorable he is, and Mother Callie was here, and and, uh, just the excitement and the joy and the pride that a new baby brings, that's a wonderful thing. In Isaac's case, of course, it was very unusual. You had a 90-year-old, 100-year-old mother and father, and that is not, of course, normal. Uh, Genesis chapter 12, this is where the story starts. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. And make your name great so that you will be a blessing. In Genesis chapter 15, verses 2 through 4, he begins getting more specific. He promised to bring bring new life from an old man. Chapter 15, verses 2 through 4, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Very great reward. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me 
For I continue childless, the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Basically saying, God, I, you know, I understand your promise. I believe you're true, but look around. I don't, I don't even have a son to give uh, an inheritance to. Everything that I have in this world will go to a servant. <clears throat> and Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, your very own son. Will be your heir. Now, that has significant meaning, especially if you've ever been a, a, a couple who have struggled with fertility and how meaningful it is to find out that at long last you're pregnant. This can be a, a very difficult story if you were never able to have children or if you lost children. A very difficult. But God makes it happen. He promises not only to Abram, but to his wife, Sarah, at age 90 in Genesis chapter 17, verses 16 through 17, we read these words, I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she, will be, she shall become nations, kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. We won't go too far into that, but I think that's a, a pretty normal response. But I, I want to, most commentators believe that the idea of laughing there is not a laugh of, oh yeah, right. And it's not a cynical laugh. It's not a, a, a questioning laugh, not even a doubtful laugh. It's just one of those laughs that you give when something far beyond your ability to imagine has happened. When something so good that it could only be of God happens in your life. And, and I, if you're a person of faith, hopefully you've had those moments when you just go, <laughs> God, you did it again. I remember that feeling that way with, with Josh Oakley. And, you know, of course, his amazing story. But, and as amazing a story as it is that Josh went through, it, it's, of course, not about Josh. It's about the same God who does these amazing things again and again. And we laugh because he it's just that overwhelming joy that this is surely from God and not from us. Continuing in verse 17, <clears throat> he fell on his face and laughed, and he said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? You've probably heard the, the word or the, the phrase that even the word impossible is simply two words put together. I'm possible. Now, for people of faith, it's more than that. It's not just about doing the impossible. It's about who does the impossible. It's not I'm possible. It's I am possible. It's he who comes before all things, who does the impossible in our lives. Isaac was God's impossible promise. I hope he's fulfilled some impossible promises in your life. Maybe he hasn't yet. And God does not always work miraculously. Sometimes, and many times, more often than not. When you look at how God works, um, you study of miracles, it, there are very few times when God steps in and does the supernatural. Many more times he works 
behind the scenes, so to speak, providentially, uh, working through the natural order. But we of faith can still look at those situations and say, that was surely God. And we've had many, many folks at Northside who've been uh, test subjects, if you will. Think about on this idea of impossible, how the Gospels will introduce Jesus. The Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are full of this word impossible. I, I put down a few. You probably won't be able to turn there that fast. But listen to these promises from the Gospels. Matthew chapter 19, verse 26. Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God... All things are possible. Mark chapter 10, verse 27. With man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Luke chapter 1, verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. Luke chapter 18, verse 27. But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Um, I've shared from the pulpit before how my wife has a ministry that she calls Possible Seeds. And the reason for that ministry, if you don't know, she's had some health problems over the years. And when she was really going through the valley, and we headed up to the Mayo Clinic and, and we're trying to determine the course of action for the next several years, uh, it was a point of faith. And there were many of you who not only encouraged and gave gifts and helped us be able to make the trip and and were prayerful over us and all of that, but that sent cards. And those cards greatly encouraged her. And so her lesson that she got from that was that it's important when people are going through impossible moments to remind them that there's a God with whom all things are possible. And so her theme verse is that Mark ten twenty seven. For with it man is it impossible it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. These little mustard seeds, she makes jewelry with them, but just to remind them it's just all it takes is just a very tiny seed of faith. And you're connected with the God who does the impossible. The whole purpose of that is to encourage and remind people that faith in God is what produces impossible results. And if you're in in a valley yourself, you need to be reminded that God is a God who does the I am possible. For truly, I say to you, I'm sorry, this is the verse for possible, see, Matthew 17, verse 20. For truly I say to you, if you have a faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. I see sometimes we think, we got a question recently, I know your Bible, somebody asked if they believed, they had prayed for something and and it didn't happen, and the question, the way it was worded was, was my faith too small? No such thing. In my opinion, true faith, it doesn't matter the size of it. Because it's just that God just needs a little bit. It doesn't have to be a huge amount of faith for it to happen. 
Abram certainly had a great amount of faith. And as we look at his life, we aspire towards that. But, but even if you just have the mustard seed, that's all it takes. Because it's not about the faith in and of itself. Faith in and of itself does ha- has no power. I'll say that again. Faith in and of itself has no power. I can have all the faith in the world in that table. I can have a great amount of trust and faith in that table, but it's not going to do anything. It's not faith that has the power. It's what you have the faith in, or in this instance, who you have the faith in that matters. Number two, hope in the promiser, not the promise. The promise was believed in faith and hope. It didn't make sense. It it was an unreasonable promise. Abram kind of got to that. He said, hey, I mean, God, I'm a hundred years old. I'm not a spring chicken anymore. He didn't reasonably believe biologically that that was possible. It was illogical. Um, You don't have couples who are 90 and 100 years old going to the local fertility clinic. We're, we're having trouble having a baby. Can you help us with that? I mean, you know, that's just not... We understand those things don't work that way. And I want to pause here and just say, that's very important to understand because sometimes we have believed that faith is a reasonable thing. That if we can just reason through it, if A, then B. It's very logical. It's very mind-oriented. It makes sense. No. There are many times when God calls us to do things that do not make sense. From our limited perspective, from God's total, total understanding. But it's not always something that can be reasoned out and thought through and and, and works perfectly into an outline. It's not the way faith works. You look at any story of faith, and most of them defy logic more than go along with logic. And yet, in spite of it being illogical and unreasonable, it was because of who made the promise that they believed. Turn to Romans chapter 4. Paul writes this, talking about the story. Romans chapter 4, verses 18 through 21. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken. Some, say, some translations say he did not waver in faith. When he considered his his own body. You see what it's saying there? His mind said, well, I'm a hundred years old. Men don't have children at a hundred years old with their wives who are 90. This, This wasn't a mind thing. He considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's faith. Not believing that God can, but knowing that he will. 
And not being able to logically say, well, here's how God has worked in the past and here's how he will do it now. It's logical, it's reasonable if you'll just understand it. If you just work hard enough in your mind, no, that's not how faith works. Abraham believed the promise not because of the nature of the promise, but because of the nature of the promise maker. Um, I have a money clip, I think. <laughs> In the money clip is some money, I hope. On the money, now you understand this money is really not valuable. I mean, it's just a green piece of paper, except for the promise made on it. This note is legal tender for all debts, public and private. Now, how valuable this is depends on how much we trust the person making the promise or the institution making the promise. Okay? This is a, an economic strong dollar, weak dollar. If there's a lot of trust in the, the government that issues it, that prints it, if they believe they're solid, creditworthy, uh, credit reputable, then people put a lot of faith in that. In some countries where you've had 10,000% inflation, they bring wheelbarrows full of colored paper. Why? Because it's not worth much. Why? Did the value of the paper change? No. The value of the promise being made, the value of the, the credibility of the ones making the promise changed. Essentially, what that says on the dollar bill or whatever denomination it is, is this is worth something. Trust us. And how much you trust depends on how much it's worth. In the worst case scenario, if it's nobody trusts, if there's zero credibility, people go to other things. People go to different commodities because they put their trust in that more. Not because there's a, a gold bar is the same way. There's no value there other than how much you trust it. Okay, I use that simple illustration to say Abraham didn't believe that it was logical or reasonable for this to happen. And yet, because of his faith in God, that God could do that and that God would do that and that God would make it happen, he was able to have faith. Our unswerving hope lies in our unswerving God. And in his ability to do amazing things. Hebrews chapter 6. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. God saying, I, you know, God can't really put his hand on the Bible, so to speak. I mean, but he just said, by myself, by my name, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. There's a lot to dig into there. Fortunately, not enough time. But the gist of it is, it's not about what kind of promises are made. 
It's about the, the person, the integrity, the character, the truthfulness, how much we trust the person making the promise. The blessing, just like the promise, came not based on who Abraham was or what the promise was, but on who God is. Genesis chapter 18, verse 18 says this, In your seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Obey other people's voices all you want, but if you want to see fulfillment of these things, obey my voice. Third, and finally, the promise was about I am, not Isaac. We're in Genesis 22 now, and you will want to turn here if you're at all following along. Genesis 22, long section here, but an important story. And it doesn't make sense without any of the other foundation of faith that Abraham had. Genesis 22, starting verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and the two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place to which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and we will come again to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on his son Isaac, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both went together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide a lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went on together. And when they came to a place where God had told him, Abraham built the altar and laid the wood in order to bound, in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up to him as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord Will provided, uh, will provide. On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. This is an incredible story. And again, number one, it doesn't make sense. Because if you're coming to faith from a logical perspective, from a reasoned out perspective, Genesis 22 will give you fits all day long. And it should. 
Because it doesn't make reasonable good sense that he's going to promise this heir, this, this, these descendants, give him a son, and then take it away. It challenges us, every person of faith, at some level. I mean, could I do that? No, I could not. I stand here freely and tell you, I would not. God forgive me, I, I just, I'm not there. Could you, fathers of your sons, take your only firstborn son? They knew, they, they knew what sacrifice was all about. I mean, under the patriarchal system, it was very common. And Abraham, certainly familiar with, with sacrificing animals, is now told to sacrifice a human being? God forbid. Certainly forbid under the Mosaic law. Sacrifice a child? That's wickedness. I'm, I'm sure, I have no doubt it challenged Abraham. I think it mostly challenged Isaac. I mean, after this whole event occurred and everything's kind of worked out, do, do you think Isaac had any different sort of approach to when Dad said, I'm going to make a sacrifice? That's all right. I'll stay here with Mom. It, it brings up all sorts of the most difficult questions in the world to answer. The hardest part of being in the ministry is when you get the why God questions. And some of the questions are fully legitimate. And the truth is, I can tell, share you this with the Sunday night crowd, we don't have any better answer. There are many times when, when faith does not make sense why would he do it? To test and strengthen his faith because he, he was lacking in some way? Did, because Abraham could have been guilty of idolatry, uh, of placing his son on a pedestal in front of God? Maybe a deeper question that people of non-faith, the atheists, might ask is, why trust in God at all if this is where it leads you? The problem with why God is it's a fruitless question. You never get the answer. To me, I, I'm convinced this is the curse of the knowledge of good and evil. When we partook of that fruit, we got enough knowledge to know we don't know, and that's it. And that is challenging to some people. Some people really believe in the power of the mind and knowledge and logic. And this this comes... this. Throws that all upside down. God never says why. At least so far as the scripture says. You look at the story of Job. God never answers the question. God, he never gets to why. You know what he says? Brace yourself like a man and I'll question you. He comes to a point where, like every parent does, your children continually say, why, why, why? And at some point, you, you, every parent has repeated, because I said so. Because of the authority vested in me. You just have to do it. And you don't get to question why. Now, are you ready to accept faith on those terms? 
Because sometimes it comes to that. We can get stuck in this quagmire of trying to work through this logically and reasonably, and I think totally miss the point. The, The promise was never about Isaac. It was about God being able to do the impossible. And Abraham believed that, but God was going to show him. And the Hebrew writer will say later in chapter 11, verses 17 through 19, you can read with me. By faith, Abraham was tested, offered up Isaac, who he had received the promises, was in the act of offering up his son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now, you've got to understand what he's saying there. He's saying, if Abraham had been successful, then God would be a liar. Because his, obviously, whatever God would do, it wouldn't be through Isaac. How did, how did Abraham think through that? The writer gives us one clue, and this is it. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So the Hebrew writer says, Abraham just, he didn't know how it was going to work out. He knew God wasn't a liar. He knew that was his character. And he knew he was going to fulfill his promise. Beyond that, he just thought, hey, if he dies, God, that's not a problem for God. God can raise the dead. Really, the promise was never about Isaac. And maybe that's where we get stuck. You think about this. They watched him grow inside of Sarah. A 90-year-old woman... Uh, and, and, and experiencing kicks in her womb. And how that must have filled them with joy. They watched him being birthed in that painful process. They held him. They held a 90-year-old and a 100-year-old beheld God's promise. Literally held him in their arms. And they watched him grow. And he taught him things. We have a lot of Isaacs at Northside. Impossible, amazing stories. Whether it's Bailey Banning or Virginia Bogart or Josh Oakley. Too long of a list to even begin. But may I gently say, it's not about them. Nor ever has it been. In Isaac's case specifically, I think Isaac was a type of Jesus. Uh, Isaac was the only son offered up. Well, Jesus was the only son. For God so loved the world that he gave gave his only son. Isaac was sacrificed, as was Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15.3 Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Isaac carried the wood, and Jesus carried his own cross. Isaac asked, where is the lamb? And Jesus was called the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. It, it, in so many ways, what happened to Isaac was not just about the promise that was being made to Abraham, but it was about the future fulfillment for all people of faith. And that's why we who are of faith can be called Abraham's seed.
Abraham believed God despite his feeling, his desire. No natural father would ever consider killing his son. And he obeyed God despite his understanding. Even though he couldn't reason it out. It was never about Isaac. It was always about I am. It was always about Jesus. And it was always about the Father's will. Remember, even Jesus himself. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us that Isaac protested. I can only imagine, though, that he did. And Jesus himself said, Father, this is not my will. And yet, not what I will, but what you will. At some point, Isaac must have relented, either by force of strength or just by submitting to his father. He laid himself down. Abraham obeyed despite his feelings, despite his understanding. He believed God because he is God. Some lessons for us, three specifically. Number one, faith beats perfection. Abraham was faithful. Abraham was not perfect. Scripture tells us that Abraham had a little bit of a lying problem and that that lying problem would take fruit in his descendants. Faith is not about being perfect. If it is, then no one can have faith. It's about trusting in the perfect one. Number two, God makes the impossible possible. God does the impossible. Those are just... When you see something that defies logic, defies understanding, you're looking at a place where God is working or where God has worked. And number three, we've got we to really think about this. Put your, hope, put your hope in the promiser, not in the promises themselves. The whole point of heaven is not mansions or golden streets or pearly gates. I I know it's going to be good. I know it's going to be amazing. But we can't even begin to conceive what God has in store, the scripture says. The whole point of heaven is that we finally get to dwell in personal relationship again without anything in the middle. We get to have a home with our Father. Who loves us. And if you long for that, then you long for heaven, whatever it looks like, whatever form it takes. Trust in him to do the I am possible. One of the most impossible things is for you to ever get good enough. And some people think, well, I'm a good person. Or some people believe I'm terribly bad and that, you know, I, there's no way God would ever want me. And both of those are lies. You're not good, but God is good. And God has done the impossible so that he might do the impossible in you. Let us persevere. Let us not give up. Let us hold unswervingly to the faith we profess because he who promised is faithful. If you're ready to give your life to him, I want to invite you as we prepare to sing. And next week we'll talk about the dreamer. The scripture talks about tonight, if you have a need to put on Christ, to let him do the impossible in you, or if you've fallen from Christ, you've backslidden and you'd like the help of the church to get you back on the right path. uh, Let us help you in any way that we can. Together we stand and sing.